Uh, Molly will be doing the announcements this morning and reading the scripture. Okay, you ready? Yeah. We're going to um, prepare to read the scripture. So please stand as you're able to reverence the re reading of God's word. Um, today's reading is from Acts 6. In those days when the number of disciples increasing, the Hellenistic, Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because of their windows were being overlooked in the daily dis distribution of food. Two, so the, so the twelve, so so the twelve gathered all the all the disciples together and said, "It would not be right for us to neg neglect the ministry of." Of the word of the word of God, in order to wait on on to wait on tables, three brothers and sisters chose chose seven men among among you, who are known for for to, to be the full spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them to them for, and will give our attention to prayer, to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, sorry. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. God, I pray, um, I pray that we can listen well and hear well from Watson as he comes. God, I thank you that Watson is an extension of your hand. Um, and that he will speak truth um, and hard words with covered in love. So I thank you for, for him as he comes. Amen. Amen. Uh, good morning. Uh, good morning, Christ City. Good morning um, uh, to you all. Uh, I feel like I'm trapped by the microphones. I'm not going to let them intimidate me, though. Uh, welcome. Hey, my name is Matthew. I serve as one of the pastors here at Christ City. Really glad that, um, that you're here. Uh, this morning. Thank you, uh, Molly, uh, for helping us with the announcements and with the scripture. Thank you to Miss Nara again, not just for today, but for so many days. Thank you to um, Nikki and the ways that she faithfully leads our congregation and um, ministering to and, and caring for young people and discipling them in the ways of faith. It's, uh, it's great um, to be here. It's great to have, um, to be a part of a church that cares deeply about the discipleship and well-being of, of uh, young people, not just in our own congregation, but, but even in our city. Um, listen, uh, uh, happy Halloween, uh, everybody, kiddos, look, yo, hey, get all the candy, wear masks, sanitize, be safe, get the, you know, and uh, enjoy, enjoy the, you know, enjoy the evening. Um, uh, grown folks, look, hey, listen, folks are going to be showing up at your house tonight, they're going to be, you know, ring the doorbell, uh, trick or treat, 
uh, listen, give the good candy. Don't, you know, put that candy corn off to the side. I need, you know, 100 grands, Kit Kats. Like, let's give the, let's give the good candy. And listen, uh, um, be a good neighbor. Stay on your porch. Pray for the folks that kind of pass by your sidewalk and that uh, come to your porch and, and that do those things and, and pray God's blessing and care over everybody that, that you see tonight. Talk to your neighbors that are on their porches and on their stoops as well. Tonight, let's be faithful chaplains in our communities as we, as we celebrate well. All right, good deal. Happy Halloween. Now listen, I also got to tell you, it's not only Halloween, but it's also Reformation Day. Um, this is a day where in Protestant churches, I'm just going to move up here, where, of which we are one, where we remember the day when the Catholic priest Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg on October 31st, 1517. In protest, which is where we get the word Protestant, in protest of some of the practices of the Catholic Church, most notably the practice of indulgences, which was paying money uh, for the forgiveness of sins. And Luther's act of defiance, it, it, it spawned the Protestant Reformation, uh, and what initially emerged wasn't just a, a new expression of faith or just a new denomination, but it was a way of understanding the faith that was articulated in three pillars uh, of the Reformation, known as the three solas. Sola in Latin is, uh, it means alone or only. It was sola scriptura, sola fides, and sola gratia. Sola uh, Scriptura, or Scripture alone, was the understanding that the Bible is what affords us scriptures, uh, scriptural understanding and that it can be entrusted to every believer, not just to the priests. And it was this tenet that gave rise to uh, biblical translations into the vernacular of the day and even the, the printing press and the mass production of the Bible for public use. Sola Fides, or faith alone, was the belief that we are saved by faith in Christ, not by the good works that we do but rather that our good works flow from our faith, um, uh, not in order that we might be found favorable to God. It's faith that does that, faith alone. And then sola gratia, grace alone, was building on the previous sola. God's grace, that God's favor is extended to us because God chooses us, not because of a standard that we are striving for. God loves us. God loves us because he is a gracious God. And so as these, these three solas, other solas would be added, Christ alone and God's glory alone, but they'd come later by various reformers. So today, in addition to handing out candy and dressing up like, uh, you know, Ted Lasso or Squid Game or witches or superheroes or whatever it is you're going to do tonight, um, let's also remember aspects of our faith that have shaped us and that have helped uh, remember uh, the beauty of Scripture in our lives and the role of faith and grace in our journey with Jesus. But that's not the only thing that we're going to celebrate. Tomorrow is All Saints Day. And the last thing I want to point out is that um, this day on the Christian calendar, some, some of you may not be aware of Reformation Day or, or even All Saints Day for, for that matter, but, but these are historically rich and meaningful holidays for us as the church. All Saints Day, it's got a kind of a winding history, actually, a bit of a complicated one, but at its root is a day of celebration for our Christian forefathers and foremothers who've gone before us and those still with us who have influenced our faith in Jesus. It's a day when the church worldwide honors its martyrs and its leaders and its servants, those who have pointed us collectively towards the hope that we have in God and God's redeeming work in the world. And with that in mind, here's what I want to ask you to do. Um, as a church, tomorrow, in, in honor of All Saints Day, I want you to reach out to those in your life who have shaped your faith, who have, who have nurtured your faith or grown your faith in Christ, 
If it's somebody that's passed away, or maybe uh, perhaps it's a grandparent or a minister, or maybe it's a writer or a historic figure uh, whose life work has shaped you, then, then what I want you to do is I want you to thank God for them. I want you to express gratitude for them. Read some of their works and reflect on the ways that their life um, has shaped your life and express gratitude for the ways that God has used their life and their work to influence your life. If it's someone or someones who is still living, then, then I want to ask you to give them a call. Send them a text, write them a note, and let them know how their life and their godliness has shaped your own life and your own faith. I think that would be an honoring and honorable way for us to celebrate All Saints Day tomorrow. Got it? Now, I realize I just sort of laid a lot on you. Kids, sanitize, wear masks, get the good candy. Grown folks, give out the best candy. Remember what today means in the life of our faith and our church and what tomorrow means. Welcome to Christ City. Glad that you're here. Um, this morning, my, um, my charge is to continue a conversation that we began a couple of weeks ago that that Justin launched us into, a, a six-week sermon series wherein we are exploring issues of race and faith and God's kingdom. Um, months ago, when we began praying and readying ourselves for this series, we, we named as our big hope, our, our big idea for this series, that we would um, exit this series better equipped to discern and identify and take the next practical steps in becoming a church that confronts the realities of race with holistic gospel hope and conviction. Now, that's a, that's a tall task, and, and the truth of it is, I mean, that's even a mouthful, and it can be even quite intimidating, but there's a couple of things that I know even as we, as we continue in. First is that God is a God of the impossible, our God is a God of hope, a God who, who walks on turbulent waters and who parts red seas, who restores sight to the blind and broken relationships as well, who upends money changers and feeds the 5,000, that our God is a God who, who flourishes in places of impossibility. The second thing that I know is that God will sustain us in this work of racial justice and equity. That God is inviting us into this work, into this work of redemption and liberation and into the work of displaying the manifold wisdom of God's multiracial, multiethnic, multigendered, multigenerational and multilinguistic kingdom that's displayed in Genesis 10 in the table of nations, that's displayed and articulated in Isaiah 56 in the welcome of the outsiders, displayed in Acts 2 in Pentecost and is shown fully and finally in Revelation 7 when God gathers everybody to himself. And because this is God's work, God will sustain us and hold us in this work because it's his. And so that said, I want to continue this conversation, building on the foundation that Justin and Andrea has laid for us. But what I want to address a, a bit more today is what's to do with where we are currently. What do we do with, with where we're at right now? What do we do with where we're at practically? As a preacher, I realize that it's easy for me to kind of drone on and on and give kind of soaring rhetoric about God's kingdom and God's vision and passion for who we are to be as a radically diverse community of Jesus followers, that it's easy for me to sort of look back at where uh, God has been working and to look forward to where God is taking us. But, but what do we do with where we're at now and our current distance between those visions? Um, I don't know, have you, have you ever been like so lost and in such a bad situation that you like ask for help for somebody and their counsel to you is what you should do differently next time? You, you ever, it's actually some counsel, uh, Lisa and I, we, we do a bit of a counseling with young couples. This is actually a piece of 
advice that we give them. We, we introduce them to language of next time. And we say, you know, because it can be helpful. I, I love talking about next time. It's, um, you know, it's a phrase that can be helpful in shaping, you know, future conversations and future actions and help couples grow in their love for each other and for their partners. And it's all well and true. But what can be less helpful is that's great. What am I supposed to do about this time? Right? How do I get out of this situation? A couple of weeks ago, um, I was in Texas uh, visiting my family. I was with Annalise, and we were visiting a ranch that we lease in, in West Texas. And we were going there to spend the weekend with my, with my brother and my nieces and nephews. And it had been raining a little bit, but, uh, but I thought, ah, oh, you know, the, the ground's dry enough. It's fine now. And so I arrived ahead of my brother, and it's just Annalise and I. And um, I pushed my luck, and I got, like, super stuck in the mud in this really, like, boggy place on the road. And it was just super sloppy, and I was incredibly frustrated trying to get out. And Annalise, she's, like, nine years old, and she's, you know, cheering me on. But beyond that, like, she's just not a whole lot of help to try and get me out of this ditch that I'm in. And, you know, finally my brother arrives with his whole crew. My brother, he's far more patient than I am, and he's good-natured. But he starts telling me, like, how to not get stuck next time. He's like, hey. Listen, when you're going through mud, man, you can't slow down. You got to like go just like fast because if you slow down, you get stuck, which is opposite of what you're supposed to do if you're driving on ice. You drive on ice, you got to go real slow. But on mud, don't go slow. You get stuck. I'm like, great, Luke. Thanks. That's really helpful advice. What I'm trying to figure out is how I get out of this mud right now. Don't tell me what I have next time. What do I do about it this time? In Acts 6, the passage that Molly and Nikki read, I believe that the Spirit may well be providing us a way forward to the church at large and especially to us at Christ City on how to move forward even if a step or two or three in our work of racial justice and equity and our work of displaying and becoming the unified, healthy, beloved community that Jesus prayed for in Acts 17. In Acts 6, we come to one of these early episodes in the life of the church just uh, uh, Jesus has just been resurrected. He's ascended into heaven, but he sent the Holy Spirit to guide the church forward. And the church, it undergoes just dramatic growth throughout Israel, and it's beginning to expand beyond the borders of Israel and into surrounding nations. But at the same time as it's growing and expanding, it's also attracting. And into this new covenant community from, from the diaspora, from the places outside of Israel, those who have been shaped by places other than Jerusalem. And they're finding their way into this new covenant community. And the diversification of the church, it brings into, into relief, sharp relief, the pictures of God's kingdom that have always been a part of God's articulation of God's kingdom. A place where all are welcome and all are embraced and all are invited in. However, in the increasing diversity is also bringing to light the real truth that life together as a diverse community, it's not a given. Rather, as theologian Willie James Jennings notes, it must be won again and again and again because it is not given. And those coming into the church, they were of different tongues and different cultural knowledges, yet holding the same commitment to life in Christ. And what we see is that within the church, ethnic inequality and discrimination and what would could be described as first century versions of racial injustice they become evident just seasons after Jesus has ascended so let's look again at Acts 6 to see how the story unfolds for our spiritual forefathers and foremothers and notice again how they how they handled their situation and consider for us to consider together what wisdom they may have for us 
So let's look at Acts 6, beginning in verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. What the author of Acts, uh, who is Luke, it's the same author of the Gospel of Luke, what Luke is describing is the ways that widows of certain cultural backgrounds were being neglected while other widows of other cultural backgrounds were being cared for. You see, what's being described is, is inequality and inequity, even among the early church. In this scene, there are two groups of people, the, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. And the, although both were, Jew, were of Jewish background, their experiences were vastly different. You see, the Hebraic Jews were those who lived in Jerusalem. They, they spoke Hebrew. Uh, they, their lived experiences was shaped by living in places of power and privilege and prestige in the eyes of Jews. They were primarily from within the boundaries of Israel, generally, and Jerusalem specifically. The Hellenistic Jews, they were uh, from outside the boundaries of the nation of Israel. They were from the diaspora. Diaspora uh, means scattered across. They were from other countries and other regions. And because of recent Greek domination and imperialism, these Jews were formed by life outside of their homelands. They spoke Greek and Aramaic. They were culturally uh, diverse, though largely shaped by Greek ideas and culture and philosophy, even while holding to Jewish practices prior to converting to Christianity. They were, they were f- referred to as Hellenistic Jews because the term Hellenist is used to identify someone who has been influenced by or emulates Greek culture and ideas. These two groups, Hebraic Jews and Hellenistic Jews, they were culturally different. And there was a widening difference ethnically depending on how long the communities had lived outside of, of Israel. There was a difference linguistically and a difference in values, difference in stories, living under oppression or near seats of influence. And yet there was a shared faith in Jesus that was to bind them together into this new community, this new family that Jesus had wrought by his sacrifice on the cross. The text indicates that the Hebraic Jewish widows, that they were being preferenced because of their backgrounds and their shared backgrounds of the first disciples, the first disciples themselves being Hebraic Jews. The Hebraic backgrounded widows were being preferred over the Hellenistic widows. The Hellenistic widows, they're, they're being marginalized. They're, they're being disadvantaged in this context. They're being neglected in the life of this new covenant community. They're having to pay a higher price to participate in this new covenant community, to be a part of the church. And that's the situation that was facing the emerging church. Just seasons after Jesus' ascension, in the midst of expansion and attraction, in the midst of persecution and miracles, there's division and marginalization and pain and discrimination. And the disciples in the church, for that matter, what they, when they hear this, they don't just dismiss it and they don't avoid it and they, and they don't tell those that are being most affected by it, well, look, you just deal with it. And they don't say, well, look at how we're growing. Clearly things are really good here. They, they, they don't just say that. They address it, and they name it, and they face it. They knew better than we. The truth of what Pastor Justin said just a couple of weeks ago when he said, we will not heal from what we do not name. And we name things in order to heal from them. They knew 
They knew the truth of this and what cascades out of this interaction, what cascades in Acts 6 verses 2 through 7 is how the disciples responded. And there's two ways that they responded and then there was a result of that response. And I think what follows is instructive for us as a local expression of the church. The, first, the, the disciples, their first response was to listen. They listened. They listened to the experiences and to the pain of those being marginalized. That's how chapter 6 opens. With those being left out of care and the ministry of the church bringing those, those painful experiences to the church and to the leaders of the church and the disciples, they listened. As I mentioned earlier, they didn't, they didn't just dismiss it. And they didn't simply placate and, and try to quickly appease, but they, but they listened. They entered into the pain. The disciples, by God's grace, they avoided the intoxication of privilege that says, I know the solution before you tell me the problem. And consequently, I don't need to hear from you. The disciples listened. Church, let us listen. Christ City, in the midst of an Act 6 moment, as Justin mentioned in the opening of the series just over a year ago, our church began a more formal process of listening to the, to the body at large, but specifically to the BIPOC community within our church. To that end, we commissioned the Love and Unity Project, headed by Onea Okwobi, to evaluate us, to give us a congregational health check, as Pastor Justin described it, not just on matters of race, but uh, other matters of inclusion and welcome and equity on all levels. There's a lot to celebrate in the results of that investigation. Places of affirmation of our church's focus on the gospel and on justice. Appreciation, which I appreciate. I'm a seven. I like, uh, I like public affirmation. So thank you to all of you for uh, appreciating me during Pastor Appreciation Month. There was appreciation for the pastors and staff and, and elders and just like off the charts levels of, uh, of appreciation and affirmation for the ways that the church has been led over the last eight years. There was places of concern especially ways that the BIPOC people have had to pay a higher price socially and relationally and culturally, a higher cost to participate in Christ City than white members have. People of color were more likely to find it difficult to build relationships here. They were the most likely to feel pressure to give up part of their racial or ethnic identity in order to be here and were more likely to have experienced some racial prejudice here at the church. Some people of color also were, most, were the most likely to serve on a ministry team or on a small group or attend a prayer meeting. And if we're to move forward as a, as a family of faith, if we're to move forward in faithfully addressing racial pain and equity in the world, then we have to address it in our own midst. And we have to be willing, as the disciples in Acts 6 did, to listen to those hurt by the church and by our, by our church and for us to do better and to be better and to love better for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of those that call Christ City home. We have to listen. But listen, truth of it is, I think part of the problem, though, if I can speak for a minute to my fellow white brothers and sisters, I think some of our struggle to hear well is that we've never fully interrogated our own stories of race and privilege and our power. We don't look at our own family histories through a lens of race and racial pain and racial trauma or examine the ways that white supremacy has led to our own spiritual malformation. We haven't done the hard work of understanding our own ethnic identity. And we cuddle and we often huddle behind phrases like, well, I'm just white with little investigation into what that means or what that has meant in the life of our country. 
Right, brothers and sisters, so long as we're content to remain in a place of spiritual immaturity when it comes to understanding our own racial identities, beautiful and broken as they are, we will continue to be a hindrance in the ongoing work of racial healing that the Spirit of God is inviting us into. Now, I've told parts of my own story before, but I'm going to tell them again. So I'm going to channel like my inner grandpa who just tells you like the same stories over and over. You're like, ah, I know what comes next. I'm white. I realize that's going to come as a surprise to some of you, but it's true. <laughs> uh, part of my European ancestors are from Switzerland and the greater United Kingdom, but my red hair and fair skin, we're going to guess the Scottish and Irish parts. My mom's side of the family, though, the strongest ethnic identifier that we have is actually Native American, which again is going to surprise you given my bald head and red beard. My mom is Chickasaw Indian. My aunt is currently serving as a tribal legislator and elder for the Chickasaw Nation, a, a role she has held for 20 years. My family still has our, <clears throat> we still have our tribal allotment land in Southern Oklahoma, land that was granted to us following my ancestors walk on the Trail of Tears in the 1830s during the first and second Indian Removal Acts where they were dispossessed of their homeland. My children are card-carrying members of the Chickasaw Nation because their father enrolled them in the tribe upon their birth, an act required by the Dawes Act of 1887. And their tribal identification cards came in the mail from the Department of Interior, the same department that manages national parks. My great-grandmother married a white man. And when my great-great-grandmother my married a white man, and when my great-grandmother was born, her aunts took her from her mother for a time, believing Indian women didn't know how to raise children. When I was in college, um, I asked my grandmother uh, why none of us spoke Chickasaw anymore, and she told me that her mom never told her, because when she asked with sadness, she said, honey, you don't need that anymore. It's a white man's world. And our family is the poorer for it. And those are all my ancestors. But this, it doesn't stop there for me because the thing is, I got kids. And so it gets a bit more complicated. My wife is Cuban-American. Her dad and uncles and grandparents, they arrived to the U.S. on Christmas Day, 1961, fleeing a violent dictator who had been killing pastors and ministers and others who would resist The Rodriguez as well, they lost their homeland and they were forced to a new country and a new culture and a new life and this long generation's ache that comes with the immigrant story. A couple of months ago, we were in Florida celebrating Lisa's dad turning 70 years old. And it's, it, was, it was a great party. It was lit, really, as the young people say. It was fire, hot fire, uh, in a very Cuban sense of the way. Um, and we got to hear again the harrowing story of the Rodriguez's escape from Cuba and how they just left and all that was lost in the revolution, but how they also came to America and how America had been a haven for them and a refuge and a place where they'd been able to pastor churches and start businesses and pursue doctorate degrees. And now there's doctors and ministers and small business owners and opportunities that just weren't available to them in Cuba. And later I'm processing this with my two sons, with Nathan and Elias and 
And I'm telling them that the Rodriguez story is their story too. And that they stand in the tradition of those that have fled as refugees and have come with nothing but hustled and scrapped and cultivated a new life in a new place. And as we talked, I watched them wrestle with these two truths that were both true and both opposite. The truth that their story was one in which America had been a haven and a refuge and a rescue and another story where America had never been. And they're also white like me. And America has always been a place of possibility for folks that look like me. And so you see, for me, I'm not simply trying to reconcile with people who are different than me. I'm trying to reconcile me with me. And so when I say we have to interrogate our own stories, this is what we have to do to celebrate and to lament, to cheer and to weep. If we are going to be a people that pursue racial justice and racial equity, the disciple listened. The disciples listened. Let us too listen to the pain of those that are ground down by racism in our midst. And let us also listen to our own stories. But the disciples, after they listened, they acted. They, they responded to the pain of the people in a uniquely empowering manner. Let's look again. Acts 3, Acts 6, verses 3 through 6. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and of wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. We'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Verse 5. The proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. In response to the pain of the Hellenistic Jews, the disciples empowered those most affected by the problem. As theologian Greg Keener notes, those with political power and those with power, they, they generally repress complaining minority groups. But here the apostles and the whole system over to those being disenfranchised by that system. The disciples don't listen and then just enact a plan that they believe will be most helpful. Rather, they surrender their power over the situation, and in so doing, they empower those most affected to have the most control over the correction. One thing that can be missed in our English translations is that the names of the seven men appointed to begin handling the distribution of food to the widows, not just the Hellenistic widows, but all of the widows, that these seven men selected that they're from Hellenistic backgrounds. We know this by their names. They're, they all have Greek names. And one of them, he's not just a Hellenistic Jew, but he's a Greek man who converted to Judaism and then to Christianity. He's actually a Gentile. And it's these men that are charged and empowered and equipped and resourced to address the division and heal the breach. The ones closest to the pain are the ones with the best solutions for healing, lest we continue colonizing and patronizing. What the disciples do in this moment is they surrender their power. They surrender privilege. They trust the voices of leadership of those bearing the pain and of the privilege. And they empower at Christ City, look, we're taking some feeble but hopefully faithful steps in this direction. Attempting the, to emulate the same 
power, surrender, empowering actions of the disciples. This is in part of what was behind the change in roles between Justin and me over a year and a half ago, a spirit-led desire to see this church being led in increasing measure by leaders of color. That's why budget changes and shifts from last year's fiscal year to this year's were put forward in an attempt to empower and equip those closest to the pain to lead the way, not on their own, but as we together follow the spirit towards racial healing and justice and equity. And that's why as a church, we continue to learn and to listen and to act in solidarity with those in our community that are most affected by racist policies and practices that frustrate the flourishing and attempts to stifle God's shalom in our city. We don't want to simply be hearers of the word as important as it is to listen, but we want to be doers as well. Yet as important as it is for us as a collective, as a church body to engage in this work, it cannot only take place there, it also has to take place in each of us individually, likewise doing the work of surrendering power where we are called to and empowering others and we have opportunity. The disciples listened and then they acted for justice and for equity. The result of this is found in verse 7 of Acts 6. So the word of God spread. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to faith. Because of the listening posture of disciples, because of the empowerment and leadership of those called to care for the community, the word of God spread. The gospel of God's kingdom, it, it, it advanced and it even won over those that had been hardened against the gospel. Others became attracted to this community of diversity, of healing and of care and of embrace and of justice. People began to place their faith and trust in this God of justice and this God of, of healing. Church, this work that we are called to, it isn't just for our sake or for our well-being, but it has much larger kingdom implications. This is what we're called to, to listen well, to respond and to act upon the things that we hear, and then to see God move in kingdom advancing ways in our midst here at Christ City and across the city and across the world. Let us not lose sight of that. Let us listen well here on this All Hallows' Eve, on the eve of All Saints' Day. Let us hear from the saints of ages ago as they beckon us to listen and to act for the sake of the kingdom. I realize that this, you know, I share this and this may hit in different ways. It may comfort some of you. It may challenge others of us. But what I want to do in this moment is I want us to remember that this to which we are called, that it is not ours alone or only to engage, but that rather the ways that we are to step through this and to this is Christ's life in us. This is why each week we come to the communion table, lest we feel the weight of this is ours to lift rather than the work of the Spirit in us and through us to lift. This invitation is from Christ and Christ alone and will be sustained and motivated through that. It is Christ's life with us. And so as we consider Acts 6, 1 through, 1 through 7, 
as we consider what the Spirit is asking of us collectively and individually, as we say yes, we say yes knowing that Christ is in us and with us. Let me pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Spirit, I pray that, um, that as we have considered the, the invitation from Acts 6, the invitation to remember your work in the first church, in the early church, and the work that you long to do in this church, God, I pray that you would find us saying yes to you. Even if the yes is, is, is a, a timid one or a, maybe not as strong as we would want to, God, you take all of our yeses and ultimately what we're saying yes to is to you. Spirit, I pray that that we wouldn't be just those that hear and then walk away and forget, but that, that you would find us putting this into action. That we would consider the first next steps that you are prompting us to take in the work of racial justice and healing for the sake of our souls and for the sake of your kingdom. I pray this in Jesus' name.